Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Hello and welcome into the latest edition of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball as we uh, record on a Friday afternoon. This is a very late recording time and it's all my fault. My name is Simon Mon. Sam Dykstra is in New York City carrying the uh, the weight of this episode He's done all of the work. Hi, Sam. That's a lot of pressure you just put on me. I did. If this, this episode, episode sucks, it's Sam's fault. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I just rolled into this podcast, and now here's Sam. And anything that goes wrong, it's on him. So let's yeah. begin the show. Pretty much. That's yeah. uh, That was the goal that I was aiming for. I mean, I will say, like, part of it, my anxiety, and this is somebody who's always trying to provide accurate information, is that when we record on a Thursday, something could happen Thursday night. True. As happened last week, kind of, you know, we recorded on a Wednesday at one point and then Gabriel Moreno got called up by the Toronto Blue Jays and we had to add another foul ball because of that. Uh, So the fact that we are recording now on Friday and this podcast will be up hours later. Yeah. uh, will be mean everything's pretty much accurate and right up to the minute. It's going to be great. Uh, you're getting the latest breakingest news. Um, and with that, we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show. Uh, you can get in touch with us podcast at MILB.com. And we did have people last week after we said like, no one emails us anymore. Uh, we had people email us. So uh, huge. Thanks. Anthony Corona, longtime listener got in touch and said uh, that he has been tuned in for quite some time. He said he also read a rumor that we were all going to visit Modesto soon. So that would be great. And then he continued and said, quote, please note that the rumor is just wishful thinking, which, hey, man, I'm down. I'm down for a trip to Modesto. Um, so big thanks uh, to Anthony. And also uh, an email from the stadium food girl who was tuned in. I want to say on a road trip, uh, she tagged us on Instagram and said that she was tuned in and uh, was going to catch up on a whole bunch of episodes and has gotten a chance to listen as we blabber on about, you know, our standard nonsense. Um, So huge thanks to her as well. And here we are in this week's edition of the show before the show. And we've got so much to get to, but if you too would like to get in touch, by the way, Val Ruiz, is uh, the Stadium Food Girl's name, but you can find her on social media uh, as the Stadium Food Girl. Uh, get in touch with us, podcast at MILB.com. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam Dykstra, MILB, Benjamin Hill at Ben's Biz. Josh Jackson will be coming along uh, pretty soon for Ghosts of the Miners. We will uh, get a chance to hear from Josh as well. And um, let's kick it off. Three strikes returns for this week's episode of the show before the show. And you know what else returns? Minor league baseball clinching season as we are already awarding some playoff spots for the 2022 postseason. First three teams into the pool, all from the single A and high A levels. Uh, The very first team to clinch. South Atlantic League's Aberdeen Ironbirds, the North Division first half champions of that high A circuit. Uh, Aberdeen really has not slowed down at all this year. They've had six winning streaks of four games or longer this season. They got to 10 games over 500 on April 30th. They were 15 and 5. 20 games over 500 on June 9th, 37 and 17. Uh, they've already hit the 40 win mark. And uh, that team, you know, they've been loaded throughout the year. We also had two clinchings. 
from the Florida State League. The East and West Divisions both clinched actually on the same night. The St. Lucie Mets, who as of their clinch date, were 22-3 and at home this season at Clover Park. Uh, they clinched the East side. On the West side, the Fort Myers Mighty Muscles with a 2.91 staff ERA as of their clinch date. That was the best in minor league baseball. Uh, three teams already into the pool. More coming as the week goes along. And the uh, and the weeks go along toward the end of the first half, uh, coming up here in June. But um, Sam, we are into minor league postseason thinking mode at least, and the minor league postseason has changed a little bit since the restructuring of minor league baseball. Uh, obviously, we have a whole new AAA championship weekend coming up. Give us the lowdown on the minor league postseason in 2022. Yeah, so for our longtime listeners, this is a little bit closer to the postseasons of old, um, going back to 2019 and before that. I mean, some of these. Leagues used to have lots of teams in the playoffs. Pretty much all single A, high A, and double A leagues will now have four teams in the playoffs, which is an expansion from last year when it was only two. COVID playing a role in that. You didn't want four teams all traveling unnecessarily for a postseason at the end of the year, which is just kind of a sweetener at the end. It's not a make or break thing for some of these leagues. But what I enjoy most about these leagues expanding back to four playoff teams is that it rewards first half performers They're part of the goal of minor league baseball obviously is to move up the ladder. So you might have a good, a team that is really good in the first half because a lot of good prospects were there. And once they're good, they move up to double A or high A. Um, and you know, they don't really get rewarded. They don't get that celebration. Now by having first half clinchings back, you have that celebration with your teammates before you move on to another level. So yes, those teams that lose all their prospects, in the middle of the season, they still get to go to the postseason. They may not be favorites to do so, but at least they get that nice little first half reward, which is what I enjoy most. We should also add that the high A Northwest League um, is not expanding its playoffs. It will remain as two teams in a best of five championship series. The reason for that, the Northwest League only has six teams. Um, it would be a little weird if two thirds of the league makes the playoffs. Um, so there's only two, but there will be a best of five championship series two best teams with the best overall regular season record will be rewarded for that. But yeah, a cool little thing that got announced in the past, I want to say two weeks. uh, And now we're starting to see some of those uh, changes, you know, bud fruit with all those clinchings that you mentioned there, Tyler. And like you said, more to come here in the, the weekend ahead and, and, you know, the next couple of days. All right, strike two this week. We are, as hard as it is to believe, we're closing in on the Major League All-Star game in 2022. And, of course, for uh, baseball fans all over, the All-Star Week festivities have been expanded now to include the Major League Draft in addition to the Futures game, which, of course, has always been uh, a big-time All-Star Week destination. Futures game is something that, since we started this show, we've loved getting a chance to cover and to talk about. And um, There are so many intriguing prospects who could be part of that game this year. Sam, give me one name of somebody who you want to be included when Futures Games, Futures Game rosters are announced coming up here soon. Yeah, so, you know, there's, there's many different ways we could go about this. We could fill out our own rosters. We could talk about a pitcher, a, um, a player. We'll just focus on one player now as we get closer to the day. Uh, you know, we'll break down the rosters further as announcements come out. But in terms of somebody who I really hope is on the roster, it's Francisco Alvarez of the New York Mets system, just because he is so hot right now. He was already in the conversation sort of with Adley Rutschman, with Gabriel Moreno as the top catching prospect in baseball. Now that those guys are in the majors, he's the top catching prospect in minor league baseball. And you could make an argument that maybe he caught up or even surpassed Moreno on that scale prior to Moreno making the majors, he's super hot right now. Like I was saying through his last 19 games, he's homered 10 times for double a Binghamton. Uh, he's got a 347 average 415 on base, 847 slugging percentage that works out to a one, two, six, two OPS in his last 19 games. Uh, he was young for the level coming into double a this year at 20 years old. He's not going to turn 21 until November. And one of the great things about the futures game, the whole point of it is to put, some of the best tools in all of minor league baseball onto a big stage this year, that will be Dodger stadium, but it also allows us to get data on some of these guys. It allows us to see them in a batting practice. Alvarez could easily put on a show in batting practice. Just drive. He did last year. Us. He did last year. Right. You, you were there standing Tyler, at the cage and thinking like, Holy cow, this dude is the real deal. I mean, I knew about Francisco Alvarez before that, but seeing him in person, seeing his build, 
uh, and watching him just demolish baseballs uh, into the pavilion and left field here in Denver was, yeah, he is, he is every bit the real deal. Yeah. And that was when he was 19. Right. right. <laughs> he's now a year older. He's seen upper level pitching. He's demolishing upper level pitching. Now uh, I, this game just seems Taylor. I know he was in it last year and maybe you want some fresh bases, but Alvarez might be in the conversation now, given how solid he looks defensively and how obviously good he is offensively for being the top prospect in baseball. Um, that's a conversation we'll have later down the line at MLB pipeline as we come up with our midseason list in about a month and a half uh, after the draft. But Alvarez, I think, has to be one of the first names on that list, at least for me. Tyler, do you got anybody you keep, you're hoping to see there in L.A.? I, I do, and I uh, would make this pick no matter which organization he was with. It's a homer pick since I live in Denver, uh, coincidentally. But a guy who's got as much helium as maybe any prospect in baseball this year is Ezekiel Tovar, uh, who is the Rocky shortstop prospect at Double A Hartford this year, has climbed into the top 100. Uh, I know he was uh, a discussion point in the uh, in the MLB pipeline um, inbox this week. Jonathan Mayo talked about Tovar a little bit and said the reason that Ezekiel Tovar may not reach top 10 prospect status in baseball is because he could graduate to the big leagues before he gets the chance to be re-ranked there. I mean, that's how good he's been. And obviously uh, the Rockies have a need uh, at the big league level at shortstop after this season uh, with Jose Iglesias only on a one-year deal, but Tovar has been so good. He's only 20 uh, and he's at the double a level. He has just been outstanding this season in pretty much every measure for Hartford. His slash line is 311, 386, 568. He's got uh, 13 homers, 42 runs batted in. And again, he's 20 years old. Uh, he just made his pro debut back in 2018. And he's really been pushed ever since then. I mean, he played at high A last year when he was still just a teenager. And um, that's a guy who I think is as close to a shoe in for a game like this as anybody. Yeah. Tobar, I remember seeing him last year in the fall. And part of our conversation was this guy's basically major league ready defensively. He's incredibly good at a premium position of shortstop um, with the glove. And he was good with the bat last year in the fall league. Lots of people were good with the bat last year in the fall league. So we kind of discounted that coming into this year. But the way, again, still focused on that Eastern League, the way he's done, performed so well for Hartford at that age has been really, really special. And, um, yeah, we, we recently added him to the top 100. Whenever we do an update or if we can sneak in a little more market corrections, He's not going to be sitting in that 90 level. He's going to be moving up pretty pretty significantly beyond that. So this would be a great opportunity for him. You were, you were saying, like, maybe he doesn't become a top 10 overall prospect because he graduates before this. I think this might be his last chance at a Futures game. Yeah, uh, I think you're probably right. Because I'm sure Albuquerque's beckoning at this point. And if Albuquerque's beckoning and he performs as well there as he has at Hartford, Denver will be beckoning opening day next year, basically. Um, because again, the glove is, is already ready. It's just testing the bat and he's passing every test with flying colors as far as that goes. And uh, if you've got your own thoughts on who you would like to see in the Futures game, again, podcast at MILB.com. It's always one of the most fun topics uh, of the summer for us talking Futures game stuff, and it's coming up uh, next month at Dodger Stadium. And uh, strike three this week, there was a game that came with a whole lot of emotion in San Antonio, Texas, uh, a couple of days ago in which the San Antonio Missions uh, dressed in Uvalde Coyotes high school baseball jerseys, auctioned those off after the game, trailed the majority of the game, and then got the walk-off victory. Uh, a very cool thing for uh, San Antonio, uh, a moment of celebration wearing Uvalde across uh, their chest. Sam, it's a, a month that has been really difficult uh, for not only, obviously, that community in that area, the entire state of Texas and the entire country as well. Uh, minor league baseball teams are always – um, so good at being able to figure out how can we help. And this is a really amazing thing uh, for the missions to have done. And I mean, you see that, that photo, those jerseys on the field um, that's emotional to see and, uh, and very cool of the missions uh, to be able to do something to, to help out and to try to um, uplift some spirits as well. Yeah. And, and it was just such a cool moment to follow last night. Not, not just seeing Uvalde on a professional baseball field, a double-A field. We should mention, you know, San Antonio is 80 miles from Uvalde. They're the closest major city, really, to do this. So uh, it made all the sense of the world for the San Antonio missions to get involved somehow. But 
it, it's easy for us to say that it's still something they need to pull off and, and having Uvalde across these guys' chests, again, they're replicas of the high school jerseys that these guys are actually wearing. It's not just a patch. It's not just a hat. It's, it's the whole deal. It was such a cool thing. And then if you get a chance, go to the missions Twitter page. There's a video of the walk-off moment, you know, come from behind victory. And the second it happened, it's like your typical walk-off, you know, all the missions are flooding the field, but there's also this giant flag that says Uvalde strong. And, you know, I'm, I'm a writer at heart and um, I'm a storyteller at heart. And it, it matters to see stuff like that. Just, you know, for, it might be double A baseball. You might kind of put it off to the side and say, what does this really matter? But if you're Uvalde and San Antonio is the city for you, that is a big deal to all of a sudden see the biggest city near you rallying around you guys, um, seeing these guys who are future major leaguers. I mean, there's going to be some future major leaguers who are wearing Uvalde jerseys on Thursday. Um, and knowing that they, they wore your team name on there was really cool. All the proceeds are going to the Rob School Memorial Fund as they should. Um, so, you know, they're aiding the families of those affected by the tragedy and, our own Michael Avalone wrote a piece for MILB.com. I think they reproduce it on MLB.com as well. I encourage everybody to go check that out. But there's a, a section of that that I wanted to share, a quote from that, uh, from Philip Wellman, who has been the manager in San Antonio for a, a while now, um, so knows the area. And he he said, you know, we're, quote, we're fathers, we're sons. And to see something like that happen and to also have children involved is just devastating. The only way to combat evil is with kindness and generosity. What we did tonight can't replace what those families have lost, but any amount can help ease some of the financial burden they will be dealing with. The feelings are remorse and grief. You just wish you could do more. And, you know, I, I'm sure the San Antonio missions, this is just the start of what they're doing. I'm sure they've done, they've helped out before this. And I'm sure everybody in that area is going to continue to be there for Uvalde. But this seems like a very special moment and a kind of a unique baseball moment as well. And before we wrap up three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show, there's one more um, story that we want to discuss. And that is a piece that was in the athletic this week um, by Britt Giroli, who is a, a former MLB.com writer, of course, and now uh, is one of the national baseball writers uh, for the athletic. And uh, she had a piece on the site about former Lynchburg Hillcats radio voice, Maura Sheridan, who was one of the, at the time, four uh, women who were lead play-by-play -play voices uh, or play-by-play -play voices at all in minor league baseball and uh, did not return to the Lynchburg Hillcats after her lone season there. And uh, if was if you were somebody who was wondering uh, earlier this year, what happened to, to Maura Sheridan? We know about some of the other broadcasters around minor league baseball, um, and she's not back in the minor leagues. This story explains why, and it is really difficult to read. Uh, Maura Sheridan reported a sexual assault by a player on that Hillcats team that occurred in 2021, and she was not brought back to the Hillcats, who um, evidently posted her job uh, on a job forum without communicating with her uh, to figure out whether or not she would be back in 2022. I spent four years as a radio broadcaster in the minor leagues. I have never heard of a team doing that. That is unconscionable to me uh, for a front office to do that. Um, and obviously there is a lot more at play than just, oh, we thought you weren't coming back. There is a, a whole sub-layer to this story. Uh, we very much encourage you to read the story. Um, Maura is a, a, a great broadcaster. I love being able to listen to her uh, last year when I was, you know, cutting highlights from Lynchburg or, um, you know, watching uh, on MILB.TV or listening uh, on MILB.com. Um, we have made some progress in on-field roles, especially for women in baseball. There's been uh, so much more of a spotlight put on women's baseball and women in baseball, but there is so much more that needs to be done. And stories like this showcase one massive element of that. Um, and it's something that we did not want to uh, neglect to bring up this week. It is a tremendously difficult story to read, but it is uh, an infinitely worse thing to go through and feel alone through something that I cannot even begin to imagine. Um, and it's, uh, it's a piece that I believe is unlocked at the athletic.com. So you don't need an athletic subscription to read it. Um, but we wanted to make sure that we talked about this a little bit. Yeah. I think the big thing there is, is we want folks to read it just to hear Mora in her own words. You know, it's written by Britt Droli, but, um, it's still, you know, features quotes from 
more of herself and, and telling this very difficult story. And obviously we were glad that she felt comfortable enough to come forward with it because it's not always easy to talk about something like that. Um, and, you know, we, we stand with Mora with every fiber of our being. Um, one of the good things about that story was reading that she has landed on her feet at the NWSL uh, yeah. with an announcing gig over there, which is top flight women's soccer in this country. Um, that, it, that is a huge gig. Great for her. I'm glad she's still behind a mic anywhere. Um, but it's, it's an important story. Again, I'm glad she told it. And we encourage everybody to go read it for themselves just to hear what happened to her. And that is three strikes for this week's episode of the show before the show. Um, I was not uh, around for our interview segment this week because uh, I was out of town uh, with a girlfriend. We ended up having to drive back from visiting her family in Texas a little early. So I spent uh, like 15 hours in the car yesterday. Uh, So Sam and Ben handled our interview segment and uh, their discussion for this week. And my huge thanks to uh, you two dudes. But Sam, give us the the little lowdown on what's coming up uh, interview-wise this week it features a bear which i'm very excited about yeah very bummed that i missed yeah so i'm gonna let ben tease that out first because i I wanted to have my discussion with ben just the two of us you know catching up on some of the stuff we we've written um but yeah just to tease that out a little bit longer two segments from now uh ben and i will be talking with somebody from the ashley taurus about a bear we're gonna leave it at that but first (laughs) up here's me and ben This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, last week, Ben and I came to you from an alleyway in Coney Island, uh, which was pretty noisy, if I recall, in, in listening back to it. And there, we, we joked that you might hear some screams from the roller coaster, and they definitely came across in the final or in the file. Uh, so we are in a much quieter space currently. Uh, ben is to my right. I don't actually get to say that very often in introducing a segment. Uh, but we are here in the Edgar Martinez room at MLB HQ uh, and continuing this week on the show before the show uh, with more stories from Ben's road trips through New England. First off, Ben, hello. Hello, Sam. It's good to be here in the Edgar, Edgar Martinez uh, conference room. Yeah, we uh, there's a DH joke in here somewhere. We did not bring gloves either, so I guess that's it. Um, but anyway... Uh, so, yeah, like I said, we want to touch a little bit more on some of the stories that you're writing or have already written about your trips to New England with stops in Hartford, uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, and Portland, Maine. But we'll start in Hartford because you had this really great story uh, about the PA announcer with the Yard Goats and how he's not letting Tourette's get in the way of his dream job. That's the title of the story. Kind of take us through your discussions with him. Yeah, well, first of all, I'd, I'd say... Being here in the Edgar Martinez conference room, I should not be fielding your questions. But yes, uh, on MILB.com this week and uh, featured as well in the Ben's Biz Beat newsletter, please subscribe, uh, is my story on Jared Doyon. Um, and I hope I'm pronouncing that last name right. Uh, but Jared is the PA announcer for the Hartford Yard Goats. And yes, he has Tourette syndrome. And uh, you know, I was tipped off to that story uh, when I arrived at the ballpark and I said, oh, I'd love to you know, meet him and interview him because Tourette's, you know, very briefly speaking, I'm not too familiar with it, but it's a condition, a neurological condition characterized by uncontrollable physical and vocal outbursts, you know, called tics. So you'd think just assuming, and you know what happens to those who assume, or you know what they say, but assuming you hear someone who has the job of PA announcer, you assume they don't have Tourette's because those symptoms seem incompatible with the job. But Jared told me that, you know, he just has not let it stop him. And, you know, key for him is that you're only on the mic in a PA announcer job for, you know, five seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds. So that's a very controlled state, a very controlled environment. And he said that when he's in that environment, it's like he doesn't have Tourette's and uh, it's never been an issue for him on the mic. 
but it's obviously a lot to overcome, both in the perception of others as well as you know one's own confidence issues, you know, to pursue on a career a career like that, you know, while dealing with Tourette's. So really interesting story. I, I thought, I mean, not just because I wrote it, but I mean, just the actual subject I think is interesting. It was great to meet Jared, um, get a sense of who he is, and um, you know, it was. Uh, uh, a privilege to write about him and, and uh, I'm glad I met him and that's a unique story. And if you go to a Hartford Yard Goats game at Dunkin' Donuts Park and you hear Jared on the PA, you know that much more about him. And I, I think um, it's a good fact to know. Yeah. And like I said, check out that story right now. It is live on MILB.com about Jared Doyon. Uh, and then moving along to Manchester, New Hampshire, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week and, and we've previewed it before, um, but you were there for Chicken Tenders Night. And you got to write about that extensively and, and kind of organize your thoughts on that. Just kind of take us through that one more time in case anybody who hasn't listened to the show or, you know, based off your writing, what Chicken Tenders Night was like there uh, at the home of the Fisher Cats. Right. Manchester, where the Fisher Cats are located, is the birthplace of the chicken tender. They were invented at the Puritan Backroom Restaurant in 1974. That's an establishment that's been around in one form or another since 1917. And uh, again, I say this all the time, but uh, I like minor league baseball as an avenue to learn about these kind of things. And so on MILB.com, uh, there is now a you know full write-up of the event and uh, the ideas behind it. And um, you know, having attended it, I think one of the best aspects and one that was pretty crucial is that at the ball game in which the team dressed up or you know, wore uniforms as the chicken tenders, um, you know, they served Puritan backroom chicken tenders at the ballpark. And uh, I was able to speak with the man who now runs the Puritan back room. He's third generation in the family that has always owned it. His name is Arthur Pappas. And in talking to him, you know, it's just good to get the perspective of a, of a business owner who really cares. You know, he was into the whole idea, but it gave him some pause and some anxiety because he said to me, you know, hey, I can make chicken tenders for 400 people, but I can't do it for 4,000, or at least I didn't think I could. And it's funny, as much as this place has invented the chicken tenders, sold, you know, untold hundreds of thousands, if not millions of chicken tenders through the years, um, you know, they never really done it in bulk beyond the confines of the restaurant. And uh, so he, in a sense, didn't want to be involved in that way at first because it's his product. And, you know, a business owner cares a lot about their product and how it's represented. But he said, you know, I worked at it and I found a method of flash freezing uh, where they could then be, you know, cooked up at the game and I was happy with it. And, you know, I did not have the chicken tenders myself being gluten free, but my designated eater uh, had nothing but good things to say. I can tell you they looked phenomenal. And uh, so then our papa said to me, you know, maybe I found a, a new way to get our chicken tenders all over the country. And when you've invented chicken tenders and now you can maybe, you know, have them be sold in stores or at least be able to ship them to people. Maybe this promotion resulted in a whole new era for the Puritan backroom where these chicken tenders can truly go nationwide or maybe not, but at least it was interesting to hear that that's uh, you know, a possibility now uh, based on cooking. They, they had 10,000 chicken tenders at the game in original and coconut, which is a Puritan backroom specialty. They did not have the Buffalo chicken tenders because those just were a little bit more labor intensive to make with the extra, uh, step of, you know, tossing them in the sauce and all that, but they had the, the classic and the coconut. And I learned that there was a fourth chicken tender, which uh, at the Pier and back room, which is not represented in any of the, uh, the team's branding or the various hats they sold. Uh, there's just one called spicy. And um, I don't know what that entails, but there are at least four types of chicken tenders at the Pier and back room. So if you're going to Manchester or if you're from that area, well, if you're from there, you've probably already been to the restaurant. But if you're visiting the Fisher Cats, uh, make sure to work in a trip to the Puritan Backroom Restaurant, get an order of chicken tenders, and you can uh, taste where it all began. I'm going to guess that it's it's almost like your buffalo chicken order at like a Buffalo Wild Wings or something like that. You can get mild buffalo or you can get spicy buffalo. That's, that's what I'm going to guess, but I haven't been. So I guess that's a reason for me to go up to Manchester at some point and figure out what's the difference between a buffalo chicken tender and a spicy chicken tender. Uh, Ben, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here looking at the three hats because they sold different hats for each of these chicken tenders, the classic, the buffalo, and the coconut. Which would you actually buy of those three? I think I like the classic the best. I think if I was able to eat these chicken tenders and I ordered them at a restaurant, I'd probably go with buffalo. But in terms of the hat, I like the classic. One, it's a yellow brim. They all have blue backgrounds, blue bodies. But um, the yellow brim is is unique to me, and I like that. And 
you know, the buffalo is slathered in sauce and has horns and his eyes closed. He just looks a little too weird and out there. The coconut is wearing like a bra with a like coconut shell bikini top and a luau skirt. Again, just a little too goofy for me. I'm not saying a classic chicken tender cap featuring an anthropomorphic chicken tender isn't goofy, but by these standards, there's just a little more, uh, I don't want to say dignity. We're, we're <laughs> dignified wearing any anything. But uh, it's, just a, it's a more classic look. That's what I'm trying to say. And uh, by the standards of if you're wearing a ch- chicken tender hat, I, I would say it's not just uh, you're, you're not just representing the classic, but it's the most classic look. What about you, Sam? Uh, I, I'm probably on your side there. I mean, buffalo is what I would definitely eat. Uh, anybody who knows me, if there's a buffalo chicken sandwich on the menu, I'm probably ordering that. But you're right. I mean, the, just the look of the animated buffalo chicken tender, which looks a little bit like a demon. Um, and it, I think it's slathered in sauce, but it also looks like it's maybe on fire. I don't know. There's just like a lot of things to explain. Whereas the, the classic, you kind of get it just by looking at, it. you're going to get some funny looks no matter what, but that's part of the joy of the minor league hat. Um, but you don't have to explain it further. Somebody can look at it and be like, all right, that's either a chicken tender or a chicken nugget or something. And that's pretty funny. Um, meanwhile, you're also asking why you have a devilish chicken on your head is, is a different story. Um, so I'm probably on team classic as well. Uh, and Ben, just, you know, going through Portland, you included a lot about Portland in your newsletter that's out now, a lot of which we've touched on your adventures with Josh Jackson, um, traveling through the state of Maine or at least Southeast Maine. Um, but anything else you want to kind of touch on about Portland, especially that was in that newsletter for folks to check out? Um, no, just to check out the newsletter. Uh, there is a newsletter registration page at the top of MILB.com. You can specifically check, uh, to subscribe only to the Ben's Biz Beat, if that's what you're interested in. Um, and always, as I keep saying, email me if you want to subscribe and you have not yet found that link, or if you have not seen me share it on Twitter, but benjamin.hill at mlb.com. Uh, the newsletter has a whole jo- Josh Jackson you know, takeover portion in which he you know, explains uh, some of the places we went uh, along the way. And also a story that will be out tomorrow, Friday, the same day this podcast drops, is a story on Slugger, the Sea Dog's mascot. You know, he's a dog. He is what was described to me by his unnamed spokesperson as a resting frown face. But the reason I wrote about Slugger, I I usually don't write just specifically about a mascot, but if you're on social media, follow minor league teams, you've probably seen some Slugger skits come into your timeline over the last couple of years. A lot of props, theatricality, music cues. Um, Slugger himself, you know, has lots of dance moves and can flip. And uh, they get a lot of attention. They're really well thought out 72nd comic vignettes. So I wanted to, uh, you know, give a little publicity to that and try to highlight what it is that makes Slugger a truly a standout mascot in minor league baseball. And he's doing it up there in Maine. Uh, so special, special individuals out there in Maine. Josh Jackson, Slugger. I don't know who, Stephen King. What else do you need? I was going to say, we definitely need a third. And I think Stephen King accounts for like five Mainers in that discussion. Um, but uh, so, you know, that pretty much wraps up the discussions we're probably going to have about your New England trip. But like so many things during the season, that means another trip is right around the corner for you, Ben. And you announced it, speaking of your newsletter, you announced it in your most recent newsletter that you will be heading to the upper Midwest, going first uh, to see Beloit, then Wisconsin, and then finishing up in St. Paul. Two of those three are parks you have not been to yet. Beloit, obviously a brand new ballpark. St. Paul officially joining affiliated ball last year uh what are you looking forward to most about this trip and you know sandwiching in wisconsin in there just because it's a fun place to see a game it sounds like yeah i'm definitely looking forward to this one june 29th and 30th in beloit uh they are now the sky carp no longer the snappers and no longer at pullman field of course they're now at abc supply stadium which they moved into last year that's one of uh yeah, not many ballparks I have not been to in the affiliated landscape. So uh, really looking forward to getting up there, seeing the ways that the, uh, the the new ballpark is different from the old one. And I'm sure the answer to that question, broadly speaking, is in many, many ways. Uh, Pullman Field was a comparatively no-frills facility. And, um, you know, I've talked about this before, but Beloit, Wisconsin is the type of market that you, you can't just guarantee a minor league team is going to exist there. You know, it's a small market. They were in an old ballpark. So uh, getting it done to have that new ballpark and, and keep minor league baseball in that town, a uh, small city, whatever you want to call it, I think is really cool. So I'm interested to uh, checking out the environment there and then going to Appleton, Wisconsin, home of the Timber Rattlers. I've not been there in nine years, but that's always a fun team to visit a, uh, you know, do a lot of uh, fun, creative stuff. I went there nine years ago for two nights and uh, just had, 
a rollicking good time. So much going on uh, throughout the toilet paper first pitch on Salute to Paper Night. And that was later featured on uh, one of my baseball cards in the 2016 uh, Tops Pro debut insert set. So I don't think I'll do anything this time around that'll get me on a baseball card, especially because there's no longer Ben's Biz baseball cards, but it was good while it lasted. And maybe they will uh, come again some way, but I think Appleton will be a lot of fun. And then St. Paul, I mean, St. Paul is one of those teams, the Saints, that you know anyone who follows baseball has heard about them over the years. They were independent, but you know, real, real creative, irreverent, uh, you know, a Veckian philosophy of promotions. And, you know, the team literally has Mike Veck in the ownership group and um, always the sort of team I wanted to write about and wanted to cover, but they were independent and uh, now they're affiliated. So really looking forward to what's going on there, meeting this year's ball pig. You know, they got a different ball pig every year, meeting the usher tainers, uh, these ushers slash entertainers, hence <laughs> usher tainers, uh, really uh, interesting, creative, uh, you know, zany stuff going on. I'll be there uh, July 2nd and 3rd. So it'll be a big holiday weekend games. And I hope there's room for little old Ben's biz in the midst of all the chaos. Yeah, we should say that that trip is going to be from June 29th to July 3rd, which means when this podcast is coming out, it's less than two weeks away uh, and ending right around 4th of July. So that'll be a, a fun trip to talk about on podcasts in the future. All right, now let's pivot to our interview segment here, which is a little different this week. I mean, in the past, we've had members of minor league front offices on the show to talk about what's happening around the ballpark, what's happening in the ballpark, who's coming, what they're trying to do to drive people to games. This is about an unexpected surprise guest that came to Asheville. Ben, you want to tee this up for us? Yeah. I mean, let's keep it with a little sense of mystery here, but you know, we, we often, at least on social media, talk about animals on ball ball fields. Um, But often, you know, it's a, a possum, a squirrel, Maybe a little snake every once in a while, Get if you're getting a little more exotic. But at the Asheville Tours home of McCormick Field, they dealt with an animal far more substantial recently. And we're going to talk to Assistant General Manager of the Asheville Tours, Hannah Martin, all about that. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Here on the show before the show podcast, myself and Sam Dykstra standing to my left are joined by... At Asheville's McCormick Field, Asheville Tourist Assistant General Manager, Hannah Martin. Hannah, thank you for being here today. Of course, Ben. Thanks for having me. You too, Sam. Yeah, it's a joint effort. Everything we do here is a joint effort. And uh, we're here to talk today specifically about something we've seen online, don't know much about. But if you see this little video online, it makes an immediate impact. The tourists play at McCormick Field, one of the best ballparks in the minors, uh, one of the oldest. Um, very picturesque environment. And on the field at this ballpark, McCormick Field, was a bear ambling about. And that's about all we know. So we thought <laughs> we need a firsthand account of a bear in a baseball stadium. And that's why Ann is here. Um, yes. So there's a bear on the baseball at the baseball stadium. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, walk us through it. For sure. Um, and I have to start by saying that I probably would not have seen it unless our general manager, Larry, had called me. I was inside working at my desk and my cell phone rings and I see it's Larry and I pick up and he says, you need to come outside, come outside, hurry, hurry. And I'm like, what, what is going on? And so I run outside on our, our suite deck, which is down, um, the first baseline. And just as I'm coming out on the deck, there is the bear walking around the warning track so casually, so calmly, and just making his way towards the um, home dugout around the warning track towards home. Um, on the other side of the field at this point, we basically have our whole stadium operations team. Um, it's four, four guys and our groundskeeper is on the field at this point as well. So bear just keeps moseying around goes into the visitor's dugout, walks the length of it, comes up the stairs, 
goes into the seating bowl. We have a, a small little gate, you know, from the field into the seating bowl, goes into the seating bowl. And at this point, our ops team starts backing away, starts trying to find some space between it. Um, and then we back right up to the woods. Ben, you've, you've been to our park. You know we're pretty landlocked here. You know, the outfield is surrounded by woods. The concourse backs up right to the woods. So the bear was able to just, again, leave casually through a gate and go back up to the woods. So it was a pretty quick encounter, but very, very cool to see. Yeah, and, you know, are there policies in place for bears on the field? Is this something, I mean, McCormick Field has been open since, I believe, what, 1926? Yeah, 24. Um, 1924, yeah. So maybe in those 98 years a bear has been on the field before, um, you know, were you thinking, like, what are we going to do? How how do we handle this? And then after you saw the bear, do you have to report it, or is it just one of those things in Asheville? Yeah, once the, the video came out and word started to get around and a lot of our local news outlets started reaching out to us as well, that was one of their questions. You know, how do you handle that? Did you have to call someone to remove it? Um, and they also asked, too, if there has ever been knowledge of a bear being on the field before. And since I've been here, which I've been here for seven years, Larry, our general manager, has been here for, you know, 20 plus. And even he said, you've never seen a bear on the field before. Bears are very popular in Asheville. We have them in our parking lots all the time and around our, um, you know, like operation shed and things like that. So all around us, but never on the field. Um, but no, we did, didn't call. Bear left on its own. So we almost kind of let it do its own thing. <laughs> And how you mentioned there were gates and, and getting into the lower bowls and there's just areas that a bear can obviously just bully their way into in, in situations like this. But how exactly did it get in? Like what yeah. what entry point did it find? Was there honey in a certain spot? Like how did this happen? <laughs> well, and it wasn't a game day, so it was pretty quiet around here on that day. We The team was on the road and so pretty quiet, but we're thinking that it came from behind the right field wall. And again, you know, just being right in the woods there, um, there was nothing really stopping it from walking behind the outfield wall and into the home bullpen. Um, so we think it did that into the bullpen and then the bullpen connects, you know, right to the field on the warning track. So that's the process we think it took to get onto the warning track. So have there been any like anti-bear not traps, but like any uh, <laughs> anything you guys installed since to make sure this doesn't happen again? Or are you guys just a welcoming environment to bears now? I think we're going to run with it. I think <laughs> we're going to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, because one thing that I, I noticed in, in reading a story about you guys, you guys obviously have a bear mascot. You mentioned bears are kind of popular around there. Mm-hmm. Um, is there like any worry of like fans showing up thinking they might also now see wildlife at the park? Well, and that's that's another thing, too. I mean, fans have definitely seen some bears this season already. Like I said, in our parking lots, they will walk right through. And, you know, that's been on a game night. Um, There's been some fairly close to the front gate. So fans can definitely have a chance to to see a bear when they get here. But um, also to, to kind of go with that, our fans are pretty used to seeing animals around the field, I think, at this point, because one thing that the city of Asheville does is because we are so um, landlocked with woods and brush and whatnot, um, once it grows up enough, the city brings in goats. And so we will actually have goats in and behind like our outfield wall that when you're sitting and watching a game are very visible to fans. Um, even last year when we had them the last time we had them, um, fans start chanting, feed the goats when they want someone to hit a home run. So bears, goats, animals have become pretty, uh, the norm around here, I'd say. Yeah, that was actually going to be my follow-up, uh, the goat landscaping, because I believe the only ballpark, uh, McCormick Field's the only ballpark with goat landscapers, um, so you got goats and bears now established as potential ballpark presences. Um, is there concern that they might team up and uh, the animals will outnumber the humans and that we might not, we might start seeing a whole new reality at McCormick field. <laughs> Maybe we start something new here. I don't know. But uh, 
the the goats have at times made it uh, into our kind of catered picnic areas. So yeah, animals have have ran around this place for a little bit. But I think the main thing that we're concerned about with now the bears and the goats is keeping them separate because that would not not be good. But no potential for disaster there. But absolutely. So, you got, yeah. <laughs> so you've got bears, or at least a bear. You've got goats, um, but as I said before, you know, McCormick Field is, I believe, a you know pretty special place to see a game. Uh, for those who haven't been, you know, can you talk a little bit about just in general beyond the bears and goats, um, you know, what it's like to attend in uh, attend a tourist game, and you know what makes it special? Yeah, yeah, I think you know the number one thing that we have here, obviously, and you know this, Ben, is just the history the nostalgia that you feel when you're walking through the gate. Um, You know, so many people, even on a non-game day, just want to stop by and take a picture of our front archway, you know, that says McCormick Field. And you're walking into that. And a lot of people, you know, yes, we're called the tourists, but a lot of people just say it has such a homey feel. Um, We've been a part of this community for such a long time now, and the community really backs us that I think no matter where you are from, when you come to take in a game, you pick up on that. You pick up on the community and that everyone kind of is there for the same reason. Um, It's a really special place. I started here in, in 2015 as an intern, and I've been fortunate to not have to leave since. So I, like like many of the fans, you don't want to leave once you get here. Yeah, picking up on that in terms of how do you guys balance what modern minor league baseball is and trying to get people out to the park with that homey feel, having a ballpark that goes back 98 years? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say as far as, you know, upgrades, we we have implemented some new technology as far as our ticketing, um, you know, like everyone making a push to digital ticketing and getting, you know, self-service scanners for your barcodes or, you know, your mobile tickets. Um, same with our concessions. We've implemented an app, you know, that you can order food right from your phone and get it delivered to your seats. So we, we kind of have a few things here and there, but overall the main infrastructure I think is what hasn't changed and what is recognizable. And so that really is what people pick up on, I think. And obviously the bear was an unexpected guest this year, but in terms of the the rest of the season, you know, about three months left in the 2022 season, plenty of baseball left to play. What are you looking forward to most about the rest of the way down there in Asheville? Yeah. Well, and, you know, Sam, it's hard to believe that we only have three months left, you know, as I'm kind of typing up and going through the system, I cannot believe we are, you know, basically at the halfway point. Um, It's just wild to me. But I think for me now, I am super excited. We've had, we've had good crowds so far, but we're starting to really see an uptick in our numbers, um, in our groups and um, that school's out, our July 3rd game, where we get a lot of people from all over. So I'm just really looking forward to seeing a full ballpark consistently. Um, There's nothing that beats that because we as staff, we feed off that as well. So it really helps to bring energy and engagement with our staff. So I'm excited for it. And, uh, the Asheville Tourists, uh, McCormick Field is the home of the original Thirsty Thursday, actually owns the uh, the team, owns the trademark to the term. Yeah. And uh, there's been a Beer City Tourists alternate identity in recent years referencing uh, perhaps Thirsty Thursdays, but also the Asheville beer scene. Um, so that's all well and good. But going forward, can we see the Bear City Tourists? <laughs> We might. Well, Ben, it's funny you bring that up. Our Beer City Tourist game is actually tonight. Um, I did not even know that. (laughs) Seriously, you didn't know? No. No. Well, that's good. Um, It is tonight. So, yeah, we take on this new identity for one night only, the Beer City Tourist. Um, Guys wear, you know, specialty jerseys and the hats and we auction them off and, you know, pick a local charity here. But, yeah, we might have to. Bears have been just running wild in Asheville this summer from what I've heard. I mean, they get in people's cars, obviously, you know, in their yards and trash and things like that. So we might have to start to play that up more. We do have Teddy, like you said, Teddy Tourist. (laughs) Beer City, Bear City, 
any way you, you pronounce it, great place to see a game, Asheville's McCormick Field. And uh, hopefully you can go there and see some wildlife. Um, Hannah Martin, the assistant general manager of the Asheville Tours, thanks so much for uh, joining the show before the show and uh, filling, us, filling us in on these wildlife adventures. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One was once a solid presence. I pulled the others out of thin air. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Renton Air Rockets. B. The Dayton Aviators. C. The Kitty Hawk Cloudbusters. Unless you're prone to flights of fancy, you picked B. The Dayton Aviators who flew by a wing and a prayer from 1928 to 1930. Representing the city where the Wright brothers' ideas really took off, the aviators tried to navigate their way into the hearts of Ohioans as charter members of the newly reborn Central League in the year after Charles Lindbergh's transatlantic solo expedition. Yes, those were flighty years. <laughs> In their inaugural campaign of 28, they struggled to get off the ground. Although those aviators had a roster with men of sky-high renown, think player-manager Everett Boo and backstop Bobby Shang, most of those careers were on the descent. Aww. Some people called Boo coach, but a lot of players said he was first class. There was at least one fast riser among those early aviators, though, as 20-year-old Jimmy Jordan, who would later play for the Brooklyn Dodgers, swatted 27 homers and stole 28 bases. The next year, Dayton had cause to aim higher, as those aviators included Billy Herman, who'd go on to a Hall of Fame career that included 10 Major League All-Star nods, mostly with the Chicago Cubs. But Herman was even more of a cub when he was a 19-year-old using his time with the Aviators as a runway for the soaring accomplishments to come. Accounts of the time have him popping up bunt attempts and struggling with weird hops in the field. You might say he made some errors. The Aviators got some weird hops too. In fact, the Dayton Nine were poised to become, despite the prospect of Herman, hermits, or at least orphans. Over the 1929-1930 offseason, rumors swirled concerning a sale of the club, and by early 1930, there'd be suggestions in print that the St. Louis Cardinals had spent as much as $24,000 supporting the Aviators in 1928 and had not seen their money fly back to them yet, and that the team had also watched upwards of $12,000 vanish into the horizon in 1929. The Aviators couldn't get out of a tailspin in 1930 and had to bail out after crying Mayday at season's end. Dayton aired out another franchise, the Ducks, for 1932 and won the whole thing. And today's Dayton Dragons are one of the most envied clubs in high A. Some teams just fly too close to the sun. <laughs> and that's how the Aviators crashed and burned. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams shelled out in the miners of yesteryear? A. The Suffolk Nuts. B. The Lake Charles Snappers. C. The Harlan Egg Beaters. Want to know the answer? Get cracking. Or tune into the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is trying to make baklava. And honey, he ain't got it.
So we're about set to say goodbye for this week's episode of the show before the show. You can subscribe to MILB.TV and check out all of the best talent across the minor leagues. You can also, by the way, catch virtually a game a night free on MLB TV, a minor league broadcast, the minor leagues on MLB TV. Uh, And if you like what you see there, you can add the MILB TV subscription to your MLB TV subscription for a discounted rate. Uh, But Sam, what are you watching on minor league baseball's top talent on MILB TV this week? Yeah, so if you follow me on Twitter, you might have known that I've kind of had this running gag the past couple of days um, ever since Estuary Ruiz was called up to El Paso uh, because he joins C.J. Abrams at the top of that Chihuahua's li- lineup. And I like to think them think of them in tandem as a two-person carousel. That's that's the nickname I'm giving them is the carousel. Uh, it's not a Mad Men reference for anybody who has watched Mad Men, but it's just the idea those guys go, they get on base and they go round and round and round. Ruiz currently leads minor league baseball in – a host of categories, uh, but the reason why I give him that nickname is because he leads minor league baseball in stolen bases with 46 between his time at El Paso and Double A San Antonio. He also leads minor league baseball currently in batting average at 372, which is incredible, and in OPS at 1.156. Um, he was not on our Padres top 30 to begin the year. He had fallen off the last couple of years. He's making better swing decisions this year. He's putting himself in better ability to make contact. His power numbers are up. The speed has always been there. seems like he's playing a quality center field. Um, Obviously, C.J. Abrams is one to watch. He opened the year in the major leagues. Didn't quite work there. Now he's at AAA. He had never been at AAA beforehand, so now I think he's settling in really well. He's an 80-grade runner himself. Those two guys are absolutely electric at the top of the lineup, and you're going to want to watch them while you can until they get called up to San Diego, um, which, you know, Abrams always felt possible once he reestablished himself with the Chihuahuas. But Estuary Ruiz, based off, you know, the the San Diego clamoring that I'm hearing right now, at least from fans, um, he seems like he could be a second half option for the Padres as well. So that's that's been really fun to see uh, at the top of that lineup. You want to catch them next week. They will be in Sacramento, um, but I'm sure they'll do just as much damage on the road. Tyler, yours is a callback to what we talked about in the first segment. Yeah, it is. Um, It's a good bookend. And it's also just the lazy and obvious pick. But uh, Ezekiel so far in the Hartford Yard Goats are home this weekend to take on the Akron Rubber Ducks. Uh, some fun talent on that Akron team as well. But if you want to see what the hype is about uh, with somebody like Ezekiel Tovar, you can find him on MILB.TV. He is at home this weekend at Dunkin' Donuts Park uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, and then on the road at Somerset coming up on Tuesday. So you can check him out against either the Cleveland Guardians affiliate this weekend or New York Yankees affiliate starting next week. And uh, that'll do it on this week's episode of the show before the show. But before we go, uh, we're calling all MILB fans. MILBstore.com is your one-stop shop for minor league team official gear. Whether you're searching for the perfect fitted cap, the latest on-field theme night jersey, or the perfect gift for a family member, you can browse over 500 different logos and designs from your favorite MILB teams. Head on over to MILBstore.com today and subscribe to our newsletter to receive 10% off your first purchase. MILB Store, we have your fun in store. And there's one thing I want to call out real quick on that MLB store thing. First, if you are listening to this before Father's Day, it might be a little late to order something on Father's Day, but you can get 20% off with the code MILBDAD. So maybe you are a dad and you want to order it for yourself, you can get 20% off. You can do what my dad always did, which was basically buy his own stuff and just say, like, you got this for me. Thanks for this that I got from you. Yeah. 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 It's perfectly viable. Everybody gets what they want. It works out. Um, But also they, you mentioned theme night in that read there, Tyler, they have a really cool theme night collection page. Uh, And as some of you may recall, we did a hat draft a couple months ago. We did very fun on our, on our end. seems like it was very fun on your end to listen to as well. And I've been always trying to think of what's a way we can bring back drafts between me, you and, and Ben. This seems like the perfect opportunity for that theme night collection. Um, there are just so many different theme nights that some of which we've talked about on the show. The Akron JoJo's are here. Um, the Coney Island Franks are here. The Charleston Rainbows. We go on and on down the list. I don't want to reveal who I might be drafting, but all of it is here. All of it has links to where you can purchase some of this stuff uh, and get your own theme night collection, hats, shirts, whatever. Um, so keep an eye out. We 
I don't know when, because we're in the thick of the season right now, but a theme night uh, draft might be coming down the line. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a very good one. I also, um, so as I mentioned earlier, drove to uh, Texas for a wedding uh, last week or 10 days ago, whatever. And then, uh, went on to East Texas to see my girlfriend's family. But we, the first night we stayed in Amarillo, uh, did not get there in time to go see the sod poodles play at Hodgetown. But I did go for anybody who is familiar with Amarillo, Texas. I did go to the big Texan steak ranch and had a gigantic steak and it was amazing. And so now I feel like I'm like partially from Amarillo because I had a huge stake in Amarillo. So I got to get a, I got to get a sod poodles hat at some point. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to go with a pointy boots hat or if I'm going to just go with a sod poodles hat. Um, I don't know. I got to figure that out, but uh, that's probably going to be my next. My next. One thing I like about the, the sod poodles whole look is that it feels like a special hat for somebody else. It's very much non-traditional, I guess. Um, and, and that, I don't know. It, it seems to travel really well. Like if somebody gets it, they really get it. And if they don't, well, here's just a sod poodle on a hat wearing a wearing his own hat. We were also in, I don't know, some super small town yesterday. And I look out the window and we were, I think, 60 miles away from Amarillo. And there was a billboard on the side of the road that said, you've just entered sod poodles country. And I was very happy about it. Um, so kudos to the Amarillo Zod Poodles for that, uh, the billboard on 287 down there, uh, down there, down there, near Amarillo, down there. Man uh, goes to Texas once. <laughs> my girlfriend is not impressed with my, uh, imitation of a Texas accent. Um, so anyway, head on over to MILBstore.com and get all your favorite stuff. And, uh, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show for Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill and Josh Jackson, and everybody else. I'm Tyler Mon. We'll talk to you next week. Oh, 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 oh,